this is another edition of Lit Chat with PJ and Bonnie. And we're going to be talking about what we read this month because it was Reader's Choice. I guess I'll start? Yeah, we'll let you start today. Well, I only got two reads. Which is normal. (laughs) I don't know. Not around you. Two reads is kind of a sad number around you, but okay. I start off with one of my reads and then we turn to you. Okay. All right. The first read that I did was, um, and Bonnie, I am sorry, because this one's a little dark, (laughs) but I think you're used to it by now. Um, Caligula, the Mad Emperor of Rome by Stephen Dando Collins. It was a biography. There's not much plot line to say besides that it's, you know, the history of Caligula. And if you know anything about Caligula, he goes, in the past, he's been called insane. Emperors, he had violent tendencies. So that's why he is very well known. And so basically, I guess the author is kind of postulating whether he really was insane or whether he wasn't. You know, a lot of what we get about Caligula's life is from historians who lived during his time but didn't like him. Uh which can lead to bias, or people who didn't live around his time and wrote really without facts, more uh, naysays than anything. So he's postulating whether indeed he was insane or if he just gets labeled this because the people who wrote his life didn't like him. Okay. And so I thought it was interesting because I have always heard Caligula was insane and brutal and violent. Um, And so the idea of maybe having someone else look into it and see whether it's true or not just interested me. Now, what time period did Caligula rule? This is during the Roman Empire. I mean, what I know about the Roman Empire, you could put in a teaspoon. He was in Rome. He was actually in Rome. He was in Rome, but by this time, the Roman Empire had spread to various parts because they were conquering all over. Right. Um, In fact, Pontius Pilate does get mentioned in this book. A couple of other historical figures um, that the Bible mentions gets put in there. And as much as I'm a history major, I have never been one for dates. Okay. So I cannot put specific dates to these emperors. But yeah, I I felt it was interesting. Basically, I thought it was an interesting read. I thought it was a fast read. Um, I like that the author makes it a point to mention that some of the actions that Caligula did that could be seen as insane quite possibly were actions that made total sense at that time. For example, him celebrating a certain way had to do with just past generations celebrating that way. You can't say or point to that event making him insane. And it just mentions, you know, Caligula had a very hard upbringing. His uh, father was murdered. His mother was starved to death. A lot of his, like, immediate family was killed. So how did he become an emperor? 
his if his whole family was killed, usually it's like a lineage thing. Yes. So he <clears throat> became an emperor by just staying quiet and under the radar. He actually lived with um can't remember how he is connected, but Tiberius is the emperor before Caligula. He lives under Tiberius's household, and Tiberius is also considered kind of a mad emperor. So, you know, he was just a very astute person to understand not to anger Tiberius. So he didn't speak up. He didn't, the book mentions about him not just being very careful with his actions, careful with his reactions, careful with what he said, careful with who he talked to, because he was just trying to survive. And surviving was just not getting on the bad side of the Tiberius. Emperor. Yeah. They're family related. I just can't remember how they're related. But Tiberius basically just gets very jealous of Caligula's father, Germanicus, because Germanicus is well-known. He's well-loved by the Roman people. He goes off into battle and he wins. You know, there's always that aspect of, as an emperor, you're scared when somebody else is more loved than you because you always fear that your power is going to... I mean, it's going to lead to your demise, especially when your empire seems to love somebody else way more and respect someone way more than you. It also talks about how Caligula, I think in his like early 20s, suffers from a sickness. And historians have alluded to the fact that after he got the sickness, which they consider it a brain sickness, this is where you ultimately ended up seeing a very different side of Caligula because he didn't start off being this brutal emperor. He was actually well-liked, had really great ideas, um, but something changed in him. And so they talk about how it wasn't until he got sick that they started to see these changes. It goes into his childhood up until his assassination, because he does get assassinated. The author postulates on a couple of things that might have been going on with Caligula. For example, he could have been dealing with depression. It could have been a mixture of mental illness with the fact he was not raised in a happy, like he didn't have a happy childhood. Most of his family right. was killed off. Like about what age do we know? It was very young. He was very young. So he was basically raised with a mad emperor, quote-unquote, with Tiberius. Yeah. I mean, he's raised okay. by the person that killed his whole family. So you can just imagine what that does to the psyche. To know that you have to be very careful because at any second... He could decide he doesn't like you too. Yeah, and you're not even dealing with the rational person. So <clears> that just makes it even more... Like, it makes it tougher. So he, he postulates on the fact that, yes, it probably has something to do with the way he was raised. And he talks about a couple of things that might, he might have had. One of the things that he mentions is bipolar, which kind of fits with the personality right. traits of Caligula. 
of course, back then, you know, mental illness was not something that was um, known about. Exactly. And there was no words for this. So it was quite easy to call someone insane when there's no knowledge of this illness. The only thing that I would have to say that I didn't really like about the book was, and I didn't read the last chapter, and I didn't read the last chapter because it does get a bit political and where um, just the title alone leads to you thinking that he is going to try to, um, the author is going to try to make a case as to whether Trump is like Caligula. And I just didn't think it was necessary. I wasn't there to read about Trump. I, I was there just, I just want to read it about Caligula. It got political in my um, point of view, and it just did not interest me. So that last chapter was one of those chapters that I just skipped because I didn't feel like it added really to any anything that I had already read. So um, yeah, it was a it was an interesting fast read. It gave me a little bit more insight into Caligula. Yes, he was this uh, horrible empire and he did brutal things. But also, in a weird way, you can't help but feel bad for him because of how he was raised. You can't help but think if that's also part of the reason that he grew up to be what he grew up to be. Like a lot of people. Yeah. Your environment plays a big role. Exactly. So, that's my first read. How about you, Bonnie? Well... I read a lot of my usual authors, um, got caught up on some of my things, started a few more. Um, Janet Ivanovich wrote with Carolyn Hughes this like six book series that the, all they start with full and you have full house, full tilt. And they're, they're basically little romance mysteries, very quick reads, but hilariously funny too because... We know Janet Ivanovich always has an element of humor. That's good. They're just little fun reads. So if you get a chance to read the full series, I call it the full series. It starts with Full House and Full Tilt, and there's four other books in the series. I read another one of Clive Cussler's. This one was Journey of the Pharaohs. It was just another adventure. <laughs> Did you like it? Yes, I always like Clive Cussler's books. This one was... It's sad. Some of them I can remember everything about the book. And this one I can't remember hardly anything about it. But it's not <laughs> so, because you don't like it. It's not because I don't like it. It's probably because I've read so much other stuff. And if I took the time to really, really sit down and think about it and go, okay, what happened in this book? It starts out with the fact that he always starts out with some historical thing. Okay. So in this one, these... People are found, quote unquote, raiding a Egyptian tomb. Mm. And it turns out it is the person responsible for keeping the tomb safe. So the raider is the one who's supposed so the, to. So the raiders, but basically what it ends up being is that they're saving the stuff by removing it and taking it somewhere else. Oh, okay. And of course, through the book, there's several elements of people who come up in the whereabouts of these items become the the source of the the adventure and the mystery and the sabotages that go on and this that and the other thing and they end up with the tomb being found in the Indian territory in Arizona oh 
Okay. So you get that's you a get this twist. Yeah, it was, and but it, it's just the way they get you there. So is it's the just immensely. Is the conflict the fact that there are people who clearly want these treasures for bad reasons? Yes. And there's people who want to preserve them. Okay, this kind of makes me think of Indiana Jones. Yeah. And well, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I believe this was the Kurt Austin one. Yeah. He uh, he is an Indiana Jones type character. And, of course, they, they have to stop the bad guys. And it's... It, they use this marvelous, ingenious way of doing it. So you have to read the book to find out that. It's basically the bad guys wanted all of the wealth from the tomb because they used it to finance their bad behavior, you know, whether it's drugs or arms dealing or what have you. And, of course, Numa was involved in stopping these things around the world. Yeah. Oh, so that was awesome. that was one. Then I read, caught up with John Sanford, read Ocean Prey. He has a character called Lucas Davenport that is a U.S. Marshal. And there was some uh, Coast Guard members who were killed down in Florida when they tried to stop a drug deal. And nobody could figure out who the people were. So they bring in Lucas Davenport because he's really good at finding things. And they do a sting, and they end up finding the people. But his are just mainly cops and robbers type books. Okay. Um, there really isn't a whole lot of intrigue or anything else involved. It's just kind of like watching a cop Is show. It, would you say it's like a light read, too? Yeah. I always find his kind of a light read. Okay. It, he, it, sometimes they'll have a dark side to them, but the reading is very easy. Okay. I mean, they go really fast. And Lucas Davenport is just a character that he works kind of, I kind of like the fact that he follows the law, but he'll bend it whenever he needs to bend it, you know. And he always seems to get things done. And, of course, he's gotten in trouble for bending the law, too. But let's face it, everything isn't black and white. And sometimes you have to, in order to catch the bad guys. Yeah. Sometimes in order to catch the bad guys, you have to do bad stuff. And he sometimes falls on that side. And there's been some questionable times with the, you know, with the marshals. But he always seems to come out good in the end. And then Catherine Coulter writes an FBI series. Oh. And this one is Vortex. I don't know where the title came from. When I think of a vortex, I think of something, you know, that's going around in a circle. I think of a tornado. Yeah. I don't know where the title came from. Nothing to do? Not that I could figure out. Okay. And this is another one of those. It's been a while since I read it. Okay. <laughs> so, like with Clive Cussler's, I'm like sitting here. I like them. But it's like sometimes when I read a book, I read it. And then it just, okay, I read that book. Look, let me tell you. And I, I did tell you this one time. I went in doing lit chat thinking I had read more than I had and then come to find out I had totally forgotten that I had read a whole other book and never mentioned it on lit chat and it wasn't until like we got done that I was like you know what I read this other book and I just completely forgot because yeah sometimes when you read too much it has nothing to do with the fact that the book's not good 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I love Catherine Coulter's FBI series. I love the characters. It's a husband and wife. He runs the FBI office and his wife works for him. And there's a whole cast of characters. But you liked it, so... Yes, I always liked them. If you guys want to know more about Vortex, you'll have to read it. <laughs> yeah. Or read any of her FBI thrillers. They're, you do not have to read them in order. They're one of those books. It's nice because she kind of builds on the characters, but she really doesn't build that much from book to book. She might mention something, but most of the books can be read separately, standalone. Nice. But there is a book that has been on our reading list a couple of different times and has never gotten picked as a choice. So I finally decided to read it. And it was called Buddy, How a Rooster Helped Me Become a Family Man by Brian McGrory. Okay. Brian McGrory is a writer for the Boston Globe. This is nonfiction. It is true. I wasn't real impressed with the writing style. Okay. It seemed more to me to be a biography of Brian rather than a story about Buddy. Okay. I mean, the whole first quarter of the book, he mentions the rooster, but it's only because he starts telling you about the fact that he's marrying this woman and she has a rooster. And then he starts going into his previous life. So would you say, does he talk about his childhood? Yes. He okay, mentions so, yeah. his childhood every so often, just things that happen, not as a whole thing, but just the fact that when he was a kid, he wanted a dog and something happened and the dog died and his parents wouldn't get him another one. So, how so much? when he got to be an adult, he wanted a dog really bad. And he's married at the point where he's writing this book. He is married to someone and gets her a dog for Christmas, a little puppy. It's a golden retriever mix. You got to think it's got to be cute if of it's course. a golden retriever mix. And shortly after that, they end up divorced, but he apparently gets to keep the dog. And Harry is his constant companion. And they go walking through Boston, and he goes to work with him. And when he goes up to his house in Maine, up to his vacation spot in Maine, Harry goes with him. And the whole first part of the book is about him and Harry. Has nothing to do with a rooster. <laughs> so how, percentage-wise, how much would you say the rooster is part of this book the actual story of the rooster probably takes less than a quarter of the book wow. it's more about how brian has learned that life doesn't revolve around him that's a good lesson um, to learn he got married very young and then divorced very young so he spent a lot of his time alone with a dog i mean he would have dates and stuff but there wasn't anything close. Yeah. And then it turns out, though, that um, his vet is female. And when it comes time to put Harry down, she comes to his house and puts Harry down. And, of course, she knows how much Harry means to him. And then it's a little later on that, you know, she shows up at his door with dinner, a takeout dinner, and... One thing leads to another. And, of course, she's a vet. So she has dogs. She has cats. She has bunnies. She has a rooster. Now, they didn't start out with the rooster. Obviously, the rooster grew up. She is divorced, too. Okay. And I think that it was a joke the father was trying to play on them. That for the daughters, she has two children, mm -hmm. two girls. 
So Brian is coming into this family that has three three females. He's lived on his own, so he's like totally out of his element here. But the father, apparently it's a amicable relationship with the mother and father, and the girls go spend quite a bit of time with their dad, different weekends. And one of the daughters had a science fair project, and it was raising a chick from, you know, hatching the egg and raising the chick. And we all know how that goes around here because <laughs> we did that once. Yes. Um, Project Peep. Yes. So this chick hatches. This, this egg hatches, and there's this little chick. And, of course, you think they're going to try to find it a home or something. Well, they end up raising it. They let you know that you can't tell the sex of a chicken or a chick until it gets bigger. And or if it's a hen, it starts laying eggs. Or if it's a rooster, it starts crowing. That's the only way you can tell oh, is I, when these things happen. I can attest to this because I was part of Project Peep too. And we couldn't tell what they were. So you have this fuzzy little chick that grows into this rooster. Even from day one, they were calling it Buddy. And I think that was the father figure again, was their father was the one that thought the name would be cute. Now they thought this was a female chick, but the dad says, ah, just call it Buddy. You know? So from day one, this chick has been called Buddy. Mm -hmm. And then the day they find out that it's a rooster, it's like, okay, they were all a little upset at first, and then they're like, okay, we have a rooster. <laughs> now, Brian is on the scene, and the rooster does not like him because the rooster looks at Brian as an adversary. It's another male in his territory. The dogs are not a problem. Cats are not a problem. But the rooster can detect, I guess, that relationship between him and the females mm -hmm. of the family that he doesn't like Brian. So every time Brian comes around, he like races up to him and tries to peck him or something. And I mean, I really feel like we just don't give enough credit to animals. We think that they're not as smart, but they're very intuitive. For a rooster to be that intuitive to know that like that's his competition. But, but the way the book goes, Brian did learn from the rooster. And that's why he wrote the book was that he learned from the rooster how to take care of a family. This is what you're supposed to do to take care of a family. These are some of the things. You have to be protective. You have to be there pretty much. And see, mm -hmm. that was another thing when the relationship first started. Brian was going back and forth between Boston and their uh, suburb home. Okay. You know, he wasn't always there. So by the end of the book, when and roosters only live for about three years, apparently. So this wasn't very that. long a thing. This rooster only lived for about three years. And mainly because they found out his genes were from broiler chickens. And they are raised to be heavy and fat. And even though he didn't get that big he was a very big bird but the genetics didn't allow him the lifespan that a normal oh, chicken would have had okay so when it comes time for them to lose buddy brian finally gets the message and one of the girls even says hey i think he did finally learn something from buddy oh <laughs> so the girls were even aware the young girls are even aware that these are elementary school girls, by the way, that Brian is having difficulties 
with the relationships and that Buddy is teaching him how to do stuff. It was sort of interesting. I just didn't like the fact that Brian kept coming back to himself all mm -hmm. the time in the book and how he was feeling and how, you know, this affected him. And I think that's one of the things that the rooster taught him was that it isn't always about you. Well, it just also doesn't seem like the title really fits the story because they do talk about the rooster. It's just not sufficient. Right. They don't give you as, as much. To me, it wasn't the story of the rooster. Yeah. It was the story of Brian, which technically sort of was it. It was how a rooster taught him to be a family man. So he goes through some of the different, some of his different things, but I just expected it to have more about the rooster. And to me, it ended up being more of an autobiography. And I don't like autobiographies. I don't like biographies much. Just because I have a life of my own, I don't necessarily need to read about yours. But <laughs> Ooh. there you go. <laughs> you know, I'm not that interested in somebody else's life. But I read it and... Some of you may find that the book interesting. I didn't find it too interesting. If you got other things to read, I wouldn't necessarily put this at the top of the list. Okay, and what else did you read? So the last book that I read was The Sleeping Beauties and Other Stories of Mystery Illness by Susan O'Sullivan. This one was quite interesting because it delved on sicknesses that are not well known. Ooh. So you have, I think there's like a sickness called resignation sickness that was hitting kids where basically they just kind of give up on life and they just stay in bed. You've got another one called, I think it's like Greasley sickness that hits a part of, if I'm not mistaken, Latin America, where these women, teenagers, have these bouts where they just, they see hallucinations, they act wild, they get super powerful to where like five people need to restrain them. Ooh. I mean, it was just all of these sicknesses that are not often heard of, I would have never known existed. The author, I think she's a neuros I'm not sure what she does, but she, she, you know, she's knows about brains. The whole book is about how we don't give enough credit to our brains and how these sicknesses could be tied to mental stress. Okay. And how we need to go about not looking into these sicknesses how we would traditionally look at into any other sickness because that doesn't really help so are they all mentally type sicknesses mental type sicknesses that's or? what it seems to be even then there's a lot of back and forth and there's a lot of negativity like she talks about how as soon as you mention that it could be a mental sickness it's thought of as a negative way. The victims of these sicknesses were not taken seriously. They were often labeled as insane. Women in, um, who got greasly sickness, 
they were labeled as being either promiscuous or women who didn't have many morals, whose families didn't raise them well. Hmm. So, you know, there's a negative stigma to this, which makes it even harder for people to accept the reality. And it makes it harder for the person who is going through this because... To get help. Well, that and to accept it because, you know, some of the victims that she talks about, they're dead set on the fact that it can't be something mental, that it has to be something... Physical. Yes. And even though they go to all these doctors and these doctors are like, no, you don't have epilepsy, you don't have this, they can't wrap their heads around the fact that it has to do with the brain. They can't wrap their heads around that being the factor. They're not doing what's necessary for them to overcome this illness. Um, Now, what is, is this like current or is... Yes. So I think why we don't hear about it is because a lot of it is like third world countries. Although there was one that took place in Pennsylvania. But it's like third world countries. And so one of the things that it mentions is like resignation syndrome. It talks about this family who had just moved away from, I can't remember what part of the Middle East. They moved away from the Middle East because there was a lot of conflict there and their lives were in danger. And they were seeking asylum in Sweden, if I'm not mistaken. And so the kids had already seen a lot of trauma. So they're seeking asylum. Also, the kids are the ones that learn Swedish. The parents don't know the language. So they're seeking asylum and then they get a letter saying that Sweden has rejected their request. Yes. Right, and it's the child who has to tell this to their parents. Right when they get this letter, this is when resignation syndrome starts to occur in these kids. And so she postulates that the stress and the anguish of knowing that you have to go back to a violent country, that you've witnessed these horrific things not only being done to other people, but you know, to your in family. This, yes. And your only hope gets extinguished is going to do something to you mentally. Well, yeah, I would think so. What I liked about this book is it made me very aware of my own sickness. I have fibromyalgia, and fibromyalgia gets put in to the group of autoimmune illnesses. And I don't think that that is the right term for fibromyalgia. Certainly it does play to your autoimmune because you can lose sleep, you can get IBS. And obviously if you're losing sleep, your immune system's gonna go down. But more than anything, for me at least, what triggers my fibromyalgia is my stress. It's what's going on in my brain. It's me not being able to shut off stuff, and so I lose sleep. And so she calls it psychosomatic illnesses. And I think that with me, for fibromyalgia, I feel like it it gave me more understanding and makes more sense for me 
to call it a psychosomatic. Whether it is or isn't, I don't know, because I'm not a doctor. But psychosomatic seems to sometimes have a negative connotation. When you tell people that you're suffering from something psychosomatic, they go, oh, it's all in your head. And And I'm not saying that to be funny. But they're saying, you know, hey, you know, you're just, you just think things are going wrong with you. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you how this really resonated with me. When I had been dealing with fibromyalgia for years and I didn't know what it was, I kept complaining to my doctors about the pain that I was feeling. And it would just be random pain, random pain. And they would do tests on me and they would, in my family, there's a history of lupus. They would do tests on to see if I had lupus. Once they came out negative, that was it. Nothing else was done for me. I mean, that really did a number for me because after a while of just going and complaining about these random pains and having no, the doctor telling me you're perfectly healthy, I started to realize like, what's going on with me? Am I just, I don't know. Is it not real? Is it all in my head? Nobody can give me answers to what's going on. I feel the pain, but I started to question a lot of myself. It wasn't until I got diagnosed by a doctor who did the test that I had gotten, and they came out negative, and she told me, how are you doing? And I'm like, fine. Well, no, I was like, um, I mean, I'm still in pain. I'm still having shooting random pain, but I guess, I mean, I guess that's all we can do, right? And she's like, what do you mean that's all we can do? And I was like, well, nobody has ever done anything beyond these tests. Once these tests become negative, then that's it. And she's like, no, that's not acceptable. We need to figure out what's going on with you, which did so much for me because finally someone was being an advocate for me. Someone was making me feel like I'm not crazy. There really is something going on and she believes me. And come to find out, I got diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And I just think all the times I was let down by doctors because they didn't take it a step further and how much it played into my psyche. Because also it's like fibromyalgia is something that's not very, I can't, I can feel great today and tomorrow I feel like I'm 100 years old. So with the people in this book, was she indicating that the doctors weren't finding the problem and that that's why these people were suffering? Or is it because of where they live that there was no medical help? It's a couple of things. It's a couple of things of... The negativity that goes into psychosomatic, where the patient doesn't even want to believe it themselves because there's that negative um, connotation to it. Other people don't want to believe the patient because there's that negative connotation. It's because the patient doesn't want to believe that that's the cause, not trusting what the doctors have to say. No, you don't have epilepsy. So it's people who are just dead set on, no, you're wrong. And so they continue to go to other doctors because they want to get that. They basically want the doctor to tell them that it's something physical when it's not physical. 
Um, but it is kind of mental too, because it's the stress. It's the a lot of it is mental, you know. She, she talks about these patients and where they're living, and they're living in third world countries. They're dealing with a lot of stuff. In one um, area, it was, I think it was called the sleeping illness, where they just like they just end up falling asleep for long periods of time, and it had a lot to do with the fact that these people were basically forced to move from a city that they really loved into the city that they didn't love at all. And so if you read the book, you notice that there is a lot of factors that leads to stress that can easily explain how this could be a psychosomatic. So, I mean, I really enjoyed this book because it gave me a whole new perspective on my illness. And also just a, a sense of... I don't know, a feeling like I... Vindicated? Vindicated and just also just understanding what people go through when you you have something like this, where it's like, I can't explain why yesterday I felt good, but today I don't feel good. Yeah. Because there's the idea of, oh, well, she just doesn't want to go to the party or she just doesn't want to do this. And it's like, no, it's not that. I can't explain it. And so part of me really like with these patients... I really sympathized with them because I was like, I, I get that. I've gotten that before. Even questioning yourself about, you know, are you really in this much pain? Are you just like making it up? It's horrible. It's horrible. So like, I, I really appreciated this book because like I said, you're going to learn some fascinating like illnesses that you don't hear of commonly. It starts to make you think of just how powerful your brain is and really how much we need to really take care of ourselves. I know that for me, stress plays a major role in my fibromyalgia and I, I need to do more for myself. And that's really what it is, right? We do so much for others and we do so much that's required of us that we tend to ignore ourselves and our needs. And by doing that, you're playing with your health. And so it's, you know, a new perspective that I need to do better. And also we as a society need to do better about not stigmatizing or connecting negative thoughts to psychosomatic illnesses, respecting people and not just labeling them crazy and insane. So yeah, if you are somebody who, you know, is going through something like this, or you know somebody that is going through this, I would really just read this book. It was interesting. It gives you a lot of insight and... You want to tell the name of it again? Yes, it's The Sleeping Beauties and Other Stories of Mystery Illness by Suzanne O'Sullivan. That's it for me. That's all I read. That's it for me for today, so... All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining us. Next month is also Reader's Choice. Here's Mm. to reading some more. Oh, and also, we are in person doing Lit Chat. Please come and join us. We'd love to see you. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.